0: This episode of The Incubator is proudly sponsored by Chiesi.
1: This episode is also proudly sponsored by Reckitt Meet Johnson. Reckitt Meet Johnson is dedicated to the research and development of nutrition products that help support baby development at every stage, including an extensive infant portfolio for premature and low birth weight infants. Learn more at hcp.meetjohnson.com. This is The Incubator Hello, everybody. Welcome back to the podcast, Daphna Journal Club. We're not ready, huh?
0: We're no, It's been a long week.
1: No, it's been a very long week. We've been alternating coverage of the NICU, and um, yeah, it's it's been tougher to record this week. But it's all good. It's all um, good. We started the. We opened our neonatal network this week. Very exciting. If you haven't joined our group on therounds.com, follow. Uh, go to our website, the incubator, the-incubator.org. And uh, follow the instructions. We're going to give out some ReadCube licenses. We're going to give out some uh, other giveaways and grants. And it's going to be a great research community. So join us. Um, on the
0: yeah. Run. And I mean, we want people to be brave and start talking to each other. Right? Yeah.
1: <laughs> yeah. We're going to have Posting, to find a way to break the ice.
0: You know, about whatever you feel like.
1: Um, we have a lot of interesting articles this yeah. week. Yeah, huh? we sure do. Yeah. Do you want to get us started?
0: Fine. (laughs) I will. Um, My first article uh, today um, is Evaluation of Long-Term Outcomes Associated with Preterm Exposure to Antenatal Corticosteroids, a Systematic Review and Meta-Analysis. Um, Lead author, um, Kieran Neenan, um, this is in JAMA Pediatrics. Um, And so the question was really looking at antenatal steroids and do they affect long-term developmental outcomes? And is this really different for the baby that's born preterm versus late preterm versus term? Which is actually kind of an interesting question um, because there was some concerning findings like in animal data that... um, Antenatal steroids might affect long term outcomes. So, this was a systematic review uh, meta analysis. The team reviewed um, randomized clinical trials, quasi randomized clinical trials, and observational studies performed in the year 2000 or later that assessed long term neurodevelopmental, psychological, um, and some other outcomes at one year or older, and those uh, who had preterm exposure to antenatal steroids. Uh, the real exclusion criteria was other types of public publications and if they were before the year 2000. So the primary outcome was any, adver- any quote-unquote adverse neurodevelopmental and or psychological disorder, but those were really defined by each author or group of authors for individual studies. And then there were... Uh, boatload of <laughs> secondary outcomes, visual impairment, auditory impairment, psychological developmental disorders, um, which included disorders of speech and language, autism spectrum disorder, attention deficit, hyperactivity disorder, conduct disorders, um, all basically any mixed disorder of conduct and emotions, uh, mood disorders, stress disorders, sleep, depression, anxiety disorders, cerebral palsy, um, abnormal uh, findings on the Bailey. Um, they looked at intellectual disability and long-term anthropometric um, data. And then they looked at cardiorespiratory, endocrine, and metabolic outcomes in survival in childhood and adulthood. So the reason there are so many different kinds of outcomes is because this was many studies who obviously had um, uh, their own outcomes listed. So the overall results, the baseline data is that it was a total of 30 studies involving more than 1.25 million children who were at least one year of age when the outcomes were measured. And then uh, uh, about the primary outcomes, which, again, uh, really looked at um again, composites of adverse neurodevelopmental and or psychological disorder. So 10 of the 30 studies measured outcomes for children with preterm birth who were exposed to a single course of antenatal steroids. So it was defined that they only got their, you know, one course of uh, beta and no rescue. Um, and so these 10 studies looked at babies who were... Fetuses, babies who were fetuses who were um, either exposed to corticosteroids versus non exposure. Um, And they were not associated with significant reductions in odds of visual impairment, auditory impairment, or moderate or severe cerebral palsy. Um, that was all comers. But for children with extremely premature birth, exposure versus non-exposure was associated with a significantly decreased odds of neurodevelopmental impairment, cerebral palsy, and other adjusted adverse neurodevelopmental and or psychological outcomes individually. And this exposure to a single course of beta versus the non-exposure was significantly associated with higher adjusted odds of non-impairment um which was defined as composite absence cerebral palsy blindness deafness and or neurodevelopmental delay
1: mm-hmm.
0: so you can see that the difference there was a difference for these extremely preterm babies And then they looked at the other 20 of the 30 and included studies that had long-term outcomes for children who were exposed to an unspecified number of courses of antenatal steroids. So the interesting thing is this could still have been one course, but they just didn't specify. So maybe they got one course, some of them got two courses, um, but it it wasn't specified. But they found slightly different um, findings. So an unspecified number of courses of steroids versus non-exposure was associated with increases in risk for 8 of 12 adverse adjusted secondary neurodevelopmental and or psychological outcomes in children with um, preterm and full birth. So all births um, had that finding. And then 16 of the 20 studies that looked at unspecified number versus unexposed um, steroids in specifically preterm infants um, found that uh, for children with preterm birth, exposure to antenatal corticosteroids was not associated with significant reductions in the risk of neurodevelopmental, neurodevelopmental impairment or hearing impairment. And no significant associations were observed in other adjusted adverse or beneficial outcomes. Two of the 20 studies looked at children uh, with full-term birth after preterm exposure and found that exposure to an unspecified number of courses of antenatal steroids was associated with higher risks of any mental or behavioral disorder and with a composite outcome of um, audiometry testing, visual testing, or suspected neurocognitive disorder. And, same thing for children with full-term birth exposure was associated with significant increases in risk for five other um, adverse neurodevelopmental or psychological outcomes. That's crazy. Yeah. So different. They did talk briefly about some of the secondary outcomes Um For uh, a single course of antenatal steroids, um, there was no really major difference in body weight or head circumference, though one study found a significantly higher proportion of children with asthma and allergic disease among those who were exposed to a single course of antenatal corticosteroids, but they don't specify um, uh, preterm or term birth. It's for all comers. And for the secondary outcomes, uh, no studies reported on outcomes of unspecified number of courses. Um, for some of those findings. So really the study takeaways are that in this big review involving more than 1.25 million children, exposure to a single course of antenatal steroids was associated with a significant decrease in the adjusted odds of neurodevelopmental impairment in children with extremely preterm birth. But in children with late preterm and full-term birth, antenatal steroid exposure was associated with increased adjusted risk of neurocognitive and psychological impairment. So, um, and that included babies who got prenatal steroids when they were preterm and delivered at term, um, which is, which is interesting because sometimes we don't know if they're going to come or not come and we get the steroids. So the limitations to the study, obviously there are lots of overlapping outcomes and not all of the studies looked at the same outcomes. Um, they all had some component of neurodevelopmental testing, um, but not always the same one. Um, there's not, was not enough information unless you go to obviously each article separately about the timing of steroids, like when they were given during, um, pregnancy or the balancing measures, um. And some of the studies may not have looked at neurodevelopmental or psychological outcomes as a primary outcome. Um, so they may not have been powered for that specifically. But um, the question is an interesting one, especially so, as we're giving more courses.
1: So can I ask you to clarify something? You said yeah. that when you mentioned the outcomes for full-term births, those were children, obviously, who received antenatal steroids when their right. mothers presented in preterm right? Whatever situation,
0: yeah, yeah. As, it's not like they were giving steroids to forty weekers.
1: Yeah, because the article is not super clear, clear. when it comes to that. Because because yeah. when you if you just glance over it, it may seem like oh, some mothers who received steroids when they showed up at like thirty seven weeks, but that's not what they are talking about.
0: Right. Right.
1: Yeah. So because
0: we don't know. Sometimes we give the steroids and they don't deliver. So
1: and they don't deliver. Yeah. Um, now. What, what I'm curious. What, what do you think? What do you think of this study?
0: You know, I mean, I imagine that the differences in outcomes are because the you know the extremely preterm baby who doesn't get steroids is at much higher risk for all of the associated comorbidities. Um, so I think that's where the biggest difference is: is the extremely preterm baby who gets steroids versus the baby who doesn't get steroids, um, and. I don't think we can take the risk of not giving steroids in the yeah. face of concern for preterm labor. So
1: Yeah. That's interesting. I'm wondering I mean that's something that the study doesn't really address, but there's a reason why these 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 um uh, pregnant mothers received mm-hmm. steroids, right? Mm-hmm. They showed up they showed mm-hmm. up with a complaint. Mm-hmm. Um and could that in and of itself be a risk, be a risk factor, factor for long-term yeah. outcomes? We yeah. don't know that, right? That the study doesn't yeah, really look into that. especially.
0: I mean, like probably the most common one right now for sure for us is, is preeclampsia or at least PIH. Mm -hmm. And so, I mean, we know that has an effect on, um, you know, long-term outcomes and growth and brain growth and, and how many of those moms come in, they're threatened to deliver and then they don't, you know?
1: Mm -hmm. But it's, it's a big, it's a big deal. The study, I mean, it, it asks, um, I mean, I. I am wondering what's going to come out of this study. To be mm-hmm. honest, I don't pretend like I have the answer, and I don't pretend like I, um, mm-hmm. and and I don't pretend like I have a feeling as to who we're going to give steroids to. And and it's a little bit of this usual. This is an OB issue, right? I mean, we're not mm-hmm. really going to be asked uh, well, whether
0: that's not true. They ask all the time.
1: <laughs> I mean, when they I... do ask. What did you ask? It's crazy, right? I mean, I think it's it's like the the likelihood of deliver. I mean, if you ask me, it, it depends on the likelihood of delivery. But that's where I wanted to get to. I think are they going to develop algorithms, algorithms that are going to stratify too. and say, well, if you if you show up in preterm labor, um, are we gonna watch you for a couple of hours and see and then decide, or are we just gonna try to because right now I feel that it's about get those steroids in as quickly as possible uh-huh. so that maybe we can get to dose number two uh-huh. before the baby comes uh-huh. out. Uh-huh. Maybe that's going to change. It's super interesting. Um, yeah. It's one of these papers. doesn't provide a lot of answers, more like a ton of questions, more questions. Um, but we'll see.
0: Yeah. I'm really interested. And I, I mean, admittedly I did not look into this before we started mm-hmm. talking, about, but I'd like to see a good study on neurodevelopmental outcomes on babies who got, you know, for sure the rescue, a rescue, right? So you got your dose okay. and then you got your rescue. Cause we're doing way more of those now um, because you ended up delivering at 36 weeks, but you had enough time to get a rescue. And then that, that outcome, I think uh, a study just looking at that would be interesting. Okay. We all can right. keep talking about this all night, but we, we must continue. It is nighttime. People. Don't it know is that. nighttime. Sorry. Sorry. <laughs> Maybe not when you're listening, but it is nighttime okay. when we're recording um, today.
1: <laughs> <laughs> the um, so, Okay, so the next paper I wanted to talk about was a paper published in Pediatrics. It's called Safety and Efficacy of Nafcillin for Empiric Therapy of Late-Onset Sepsis in the NICU. The first author is Jacqueline Makers. I hope I'm pronouncing this correctly. And there's a bunch of people that we know uh, in that paper. Pavel Prussakoff is also on there. Uh, the famous Pablo Sanchez is the trailing author. Um, and this is coming out of Nationwide Children. Um, so what's what's the, the the premise of this of this paper? Um, there's no real question, but the authors really wanted to report their experience with a guideline that they implemented in their unit of nafcillin instead of vancomycin. For late onset sepsis guideline and assess the safety of the practice. Uh, the hypothesis is that vancomycin, the, the reducing the use of vancomycin, can be done safely in the NICU. And the uh, the, the people at Nationwide, beginning in 2014, started this this big um, neonatal antimigro- my, antimicrobial steward, stewardship program. That recommended the use of nafcillin instead of vancomycin in combination uh, with gentamicin for empirical therapy of possible uh, late onset sepsis in infants, and that's very important without a history of MRSA colonization. So, if babies were colonized with MRSA, which I'm assuming they must be checking, I mean nationwide is a is a huge huge unit. So maybe they are checking MRSA colonization. And uh, if they were not really MRSA colonized, then then they were they would offer this new this new regimen. So this was a retrospective review of all infants who received nafcillin, vancomycin, or both for empirical treatment of possible late onset sepsis at three Nationwide Children's Hospital NICUs in Columbus, Ohio, from 2013 to 2014 and from 2017 to 2019. So the 2013 to 2014 represented the pre-intervention cohort, the 2017 to 2019, the post-intervention cohort. Um, The inclusion criteria were infants without a history of MRSA colonization or infection and who were evaluated for late-onset sepsis at more than 72 hours of age and who received antimicrobial treatment with nafcillin rather than mancomycin, irrespective of clinical or laboratory parameters such as the presence of a a central line, hypotension, or any abnormal acute phase reactant. Obviously, they excluded any baby that was (coughs) colonized with MRSA. Um, Infants with necrotizing enterocolitis or spontaneous intestinal perforation were excluded from the analysis because their initial antibiotic therapy per their protocol involves... um, ampicillin and solbactam in combination with gentamicin. So that was not really a group that was interesting to look at because they were not really receiving, they would not have received napselin. Um, So a few, a few other details about this protocol, which obviously is important when we're reviewing this study, is that the trigger to evaluate for sepsis was left at the discretion of the attending neonatologist. So there was no real criteria that triggered the initiation of a late onset sepsis workup. Um, as were the decision regarding the duration of the antimicrobial agent. So so they didn't really have a cutoff as to when they had to stop the antibiotics and so on and so forth. A proven infection, so late-onset sepsis, was defined as the isolation of a pathogen from the blood or CSF obtained at more than 72 hours of age, along with clinical symptoms a possible infection was defined as clinical symptoms with an accompanying blood culture that was either sterile or yielded a possible contaminant, but the infant was treated for more than 48 hours by the attending physician. If um, the antibiotic therapy was provided for less than 48 hours, then this was considered a rule-out sepsis. So I thought it was very very intelligent. Mm-hmm. Um, less than 48 hours, it was a out. Mm-hmm. If you gave more than 48 hours, then you were automatically into a sepsis. And then they had proven versus possible. So that's pretty clear. So the primary outcome of the study was the duration of culture positivity as determined by the days to culture sterilization, recurrent infection with the same previously identified, identified pathogen in the 14 days after antibodies were discontinued, or, um, and mortality. So really looking at is napselen really weak when it comes Mm to either treating your infection or making uh, really partially treating the infection. Some other outcomes, um, they looked at infection related in hospital mortality, um, for all sepsis evaluations by, um, review of the documentation, the EMR uh, or autopsy, whatever was available. So let's see what some of their results showed. So, um, They had 366 infant, which basically amounted to 516 sepsis evaluation. Uh, Nafcillin was given in 57% of infants. That was 209 cases. Or... Uh, 54% of sepsis evaluation. That was 277 sepsis evaluations compared to 43% of infants who received vancomycin or 46% of sepsis evaluation for vancomycin. Um, The median gestational age of these babies were 28 weeks, birth weight about a a thousand grams, and 10% of the cohort died during the hospitalization. Um, The number of Infants who had uh, a central venous catheter at the time of the first sepsis evaluation was not different between the pre-intervention and the post-intervention period. I think that was a very critical thing to to mention, considering the likelihood of uh, how how central line CLABSI can actually uh, be a factor in those scenarios. Um, There were more MRSA colonization in the post-intervention period. uh, So... um, and that was eighteen percent versus eleven percent, and so these kids obviously were excluded and received vancomycin. So let's look at the at the primary outcome. So the pre-intervention, sixteen percent um, of infants received nafcillin as a first dose for late onset sepsis versus seventy five percent in post-intervention period, and that really is is a testament to when you have a quality improvement project and you're mm-hmm. changing like you can really affect how your unit is functioning. The difference in the percentage of infants receiving nafcillin in the post-intervention period was 59.5% compared with the pre-intervention period. Of the total 516 sepsis evaluation, 78% resulted in discontinuation of antibiotic therapy within 48 hours of initiation. So most of them um, did not yield a, a true infection. During both time periods, the majority of pathogens detected in the blood were gram positive bacteria, mostly cons. I don't know what to think of that. <laughs> uh, 13 gram negative bacteria were identified during the study period, but, um, but patients were not continued on nafcillin or vancomycin except for two of the 40 cons blood isolates. 58% were assessed as causing a proven infection. That was 23 cases, whereas 91%, 30 out of 33, of isolates that had undergone susceptibility testing were resistant to methicillin. Of the 16 bloodstream infection due to staph aureus, 81% were susceptible to nafcillin. Um, during the course of the sepsis episode, 15 infants who received Nafcillin empirically were treated subsequently with vancomycin. Seven, uh, that's 47% of these infants, had proven infection with cons, whereas 33% received prolonged therapy without an identified pathogen. Two of them um, had Nafcillin changed to vancomycin because of a lack of clinical improvement, though the blood culture um, detected Pseudomonas areogenosa in one infant and Klebsiella pneumonia in the other. One additional patient had bacteremia with strep pneumo and received a treatment course of vancomycin. Um, How many infants had antibiotic therapy restarted within the two-week period um, that they had looked at? So only two infants had antibiotic therapy restarted. Within 14 days of discontinuation of the initial therapy for recurrence of the same infection, both had received vancomycin therapy. So so that's pretty impressive that it never happened with the babies who received nafcillin. No infants who received nafcillin empirically or for definitive treatment had antibiotic therapy restarted or recurrence of the same infection in the ensuing 14 days after discontinuation of the initial antibiotic therapy. Looking at some other outcomes, in-hospital mortality during the two-study period was 10% and did not differ before and after the implementation of the vancomycin reduction guideline. There also was no difference in mortality among infants who received empirical nafcillin or vancomycin. Um... So the study takeaways are that nafselin is safe, effective, and it could be an alternative to vancomycin for empirical treatment of late-onset sepsis among high-risk infants in the NICU who don't have a history of MRSA infection or colonization. Um, And they're recommending a prudent and judicious use of vancomycin as a global public health imperative in our NICU. Uh, Some of the limitation, obviously, is that this is a retrospective review of data, Um, the, 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 the intervention period were quite long in time. Mm -hmm. So there's many other intervention that were rolled out around the same times and uh, could have impacted, um, the outcomes. They also have this policy of drawing only one blood culture, which could be hard in terms of determining which one's a contaminant, not versus not a contaminant. So there are obviously some limitations, but I think that was a very interesting study as we're trying to reduce our use of vancomycin. I mean, you and I have seen babies growing vancomycin resistant organism already. Mm-hmm. So there's definitely an emergent need to change our practice. And I think Nefcelin might provide that. I mean, this paper provides a very interesting solution. What, what were your thoughts?
0: Yeah, I mean it's com- it's always complicated, right? But yeah. um because for most baby one, for most babies that we do sepsis workup on, it doesn't matter because we end up stopping it, right? That's the majority of babies. Mm-hmm. And for most babies, it is good enough coverage, unless you're the unless you're the baby <laughs> with mercy. <MRSA>. That's right. <laughs> and not all units are testing. Um for, are, MRSA. for MRSA. No. Right. Um, and we know it spreads in units. We know providers bring it in. We know parents bring it in. So it's, it's hard. It's hard. It's tough. It, I mean, it would be great if we can all agree together that it's a safe thing to do and we can decrease our antibiotic resistance. But
1: I think you're putting your finger on one very important key, which is does that mean we have to do mercer colonization screens mm. in our units? And that's and that's sometimes a recipe for disaster because mm-hmm. it leads to a lot of isolation, cohorting, yep. and and the significance of that is is debated um, in the right. literature. Should you then try to treat those kids who are colonized? There's also lots of articles that have looked at that.
0: Yeah, so- and once you know, then you would have this whole new gamut
1: of breath. it's like pandora's box right you just want to sometimes you may want to leave it closed um and so this paper does not answer this question because if napselin had to be given in kids who potentially could have MRSA when you don't have that that initial information of colonization it's very scary um yeah
0: okay shall we yeah keep going Let's keep rolling. So, um, I wanted to look at this effective enteral zinc supplementation on growth and neurodevelopmental growth and neurodevelopment of preterm infants: a systematic review and meta-analysis. Um, lead author Belal uh, Al Shaikh. Um, this is for the Journal of Perinatology. And so they really wanted to look at the about the to evaluate the effect of enteral zinc supplementation on growth and neurodevelopmental outcomes of preterm infants. Um, And this is an important question since growth is an ongoing problem for NICU infants and zinc deficiency is certainly known to affect postnatal growth. Mm -hmm. Um, so the study design is a systematic review and meta-analysis of randomized controlled trials examining growth and neurodevelopmental outcomes after zinc supplementation in preterm infants. Um, so they use the typical, um, practice for doing a meta-analysis, data extracted, was performed by two uh, separate reviewers. Um, They were looking at the primary outcome of growth measured by the change in um, Z-score between the start of zinc supplementation and the next set of measurements and the neurodevelopmental outcomes, which were defined, um, again, differently by each trial. They did list a number of secondary outcomes which again were different in every trial, but mortality, BPD, neck, ROP, late onset sepsis, PVL, all the all the three three letter acronyms, mm-hmm. and laboratory findings such as hemoglobins and alkaline phosphatase. So, um, this was kind of a manageable meta analysis after all, because well, I mean, for me as a reader, not for someone who had to do it, but to- in total, they had eight randomized control trials, um, including seven hundred and forty two preterm infants. So for the primary outcome, there was evidence of statistical and important heterogeneity between the studies and the pooled estimate of the mean difference in weight Z-scores at 3 to 6 months between zinc and placebo groups um, using random effect model was 0.5 in the Z-score. Um, And then they looked at the mean difference in weight Z-scores, and the pooled estimate of the mean difference in weight Z-score was 0.38. The pooled estimate of the mean difference in length was 1.12. There was no difference in the pooled estimate of the mean difference in head circumference. Um, And so thus zinc was favored in nearly all of the studies. The effect of zinc supplementation on weight was significantly higher in studies providing greater than 3 mg per kg per day of zinc as compared to those providing less than 3 mg per kg per day of zinc. And it was greater in the studies where the infants in the control group did not receive any zinc through formula or human milk fortifiers. So what that means is they basically had no additional zinc whatsoever. So in those studies where the control group was no zinc compared to yes, zinc, the difference was much greater. Um, zinc supplementation was also associated with significantly larger head circumference in studies that specific. So remember taken all together, there were no major difference in head circumference, but in the studies, um, including uh, SGA infants um, mm-hmm. compared with studies, including uh you know, appropriate for gestational age um infants. So the SGA babies were affected more by zinc supplementation. Um Secondary outcomes. So three of the eight studies reported developmental outcomes at varying time points. They revealed significant improvement in communication, gross and fine motor skills, problem solving, and social interaction, and infants who received zinc supplementation. In contrast, one study reported significant increase in motor developmental scores, but not total developmental scores. Um, One study found that zinc supplementation in preterm breastfed infants improved alertness and attention patterns at 40 weeks postmenstrual age and decreased hyperexcitability at three months. So the overall pool data suggested that zinc supplementation was associated with higher motor developmental scores, but not necessarily the total neurodevelopmental scores. (laughs) It's tough. (laughs) Gosh. Multiple times today. Uh, Mortality was reported in three studies. The overall pooled um, risk ratio for mortality um, showed a significant decrease in mortality, risk ratio of 0.54. None of the included studies reported adverse outcomes from using zinc supplementation. Um, One other study reported significantly lower incidence of neck and number of patients, so lower number of patients with greater than one, uh, greater. Than one or equal to one major neonatal morbidities in infants who receive zinc supplementation. Mm-hmm. So the only thing I wanted to mention when I was thinking about this is like, okay, so that sounds great. So when, well, how do we supplement zinc? You know, in our unit. So interestingly, zinc supplementation was initiated at thirty-four to thirty-six weeks in all of the studies except for one. So I mean, this wasn't even in the very tiny baby. I mean, right. they didn't even start supplementing until,
2: until very, late. very
0: late in the in the admission. Um, obviously, there's not a lot of information um, about how long the zinc was continued for, so that's something to note. So, study takeaways: Zinc may mediate improved growth and neurodevelopmental outcomes. The strengths um, were that it was a random; it was um, uh, a meta-analysis of randomized control trials. The limitations again, lots of variability. The trials were not necessarily blinded. All the um, trials did not have the same outcome measures. Like I said, the zinc starts very late um, in the admission, and it, it's not clear how long these babies were supplemented for.
1: We do so- we do six weeks ourselves, right?
0: Uh, we do, but we do that in specific babies where especially linear growth is affected. Uh-huh. I think that's supported by this study because that's prob- that's the outcome that was most improved by zinc supplementation. But we we do that course even, you know, before 34 to 36 weeks. Yeah. So will this change my practice? I mean, I think it makes me feel like I should have a lower threshold to test slash, you know, treat. For zinc deficiency, but
1: yeah, I was interested because the the paper says that the linear growth is dramatically improved based on zinc, but we don't really have too much, right? The conclusion is that we don't have too much data on long term outcomes, right? But to me, there is no way that you've improved linear growth in a child, and long term outcomes are going to be worse, right? I mean, I just <laughs> can't imagine, yeah.
0: I mean they'll at least be the same, right? Theoretically. <laughs> You're right.
1: But I'm saying, oh, this baby that has had much better linear growth over right. earlier time is now suddenly mm-hmm. having motor and like I can't I can't foresee that. So I'm interested to see what's gonna come out and if people are gonna look at, at this study and, and try to look at long-term outcomes of zinc supplementation. Um but that's 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 interesting. hmm Yeah.
0: Yeah, and maybe – and I'd like to see some studies of early zinc supplementation. So,
1: Like what? What, what do you want? Like week one?
0: <laughs> no, not week one. Not week one. This should be on full feeds at least. But, <laughs>
1: <laughs> but week two then.
0: We'll see. We'll see. <laughs> okay. Um, you can no. go ahead and flood our inboxes with zinc, uh, zinc articles.
1: So the one thing I will say is that – there is zinc in a lot of the formulas Mm -hmm, and supplements mm -hmm. that are being given. I mean, that's one of the reasons why, I mean, we are developed. Yeah.
0: Well, and that's why they made that point that in the studies where the kids had uh, feeds that were very low in zinc, that was the biggest difference because, I mean, they were zinc probably really truly deficient as compared to the studies where the babies were fed with zinc rich things. And the zinc difference was not that great. So, and you know, I mean, I'm sure you're finding zinc in all the things with with your new app,
1: huh? Yeah. Yeah. So the, (laughs) the, 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 the app is going to be released very soon. It's coming soon, but anyway, but yeah, there's so many supplements that have tons of zinc. And then when, when you think a kid may be zinc deficient, then you plot them and you enter all the, their, their, their diet, their nutritional values. And you say, well, they're getting tons of zinc. So maybe Mm -hmm. there's no need to supplement for these Mm -hmm. kids as much as I think they would have needed anyway. All right, I'm taking you to pediatric pulmonology next. Okay, let's go. Wait, actually, no, we're going to, it's, I'm afraid that we're not going to have time to do uh, to do this. So I want to take you to the, to the Journal of Perinatology. And I want to talk about this paper, Duration of Non-Invasive Respiratory Support and Risk of Bronchopulmonary Dysplasia or Death. The first author is Samuel Gentle. There's a bunch of very famous people mm-hmm. on that paper as well. Eric Jensen, Wally Carlo. And the, the study comes out of data. Star,
0: f- it was star-studded, as you say. Yeah, said.
1: definitely. <laughs> and the study is data from the Neonatal Research Network, but the people mm-hmm. who conducted the analysis were from the University of Alabama and Birmingham. So the cool thing about this paper is that it's quite unusual in its methodology. And for that reason, um the first author, Sam Gentle, is going to be on with us in a few minutes and, and he'll tell us a little bit about the study. But I wanted to give people a bit of an overview before he got into the nitty-gritty. They 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 asked a question that was very interesting to me, which is that we know that keeping babies on invasive mechanical ventilation um is bad for BPD. And, and we and we and there's conflicting data as to should we keep babies on non-invasive for extended periods of time or should we wean them to room air as soon as possible and there's some data out there right that says that babies maybe should be kept on like a little bit of cpap until 32 weeks uh, for to promote long growth um but it's unclear as to if we increase the duration of non-invasive support will that what will that what will that do to bpd death and growth now they looked at data from the Neonatal Research Network, as we said, and that was re- a retrospective uh, study of data that's collected prospectively, obviously from 2011 to 2018. And I want to go a little bit into some of the cra- uh, of the study methodology because of that's something Dr. Gentle is not really going to get into with us right now. But they included babies who were born at less than 29 weeks of gestation and on non-invasive respiratory support on postnatal day seven defined as either nasal cannula, OxyHUD, CPAP, or NIMV, documented as the highest mode of support. Um, If on postnatal day seven, the infants were exposed to conventional or high-frequency ventilation, uh, they were off respiratory support, or obviously had died, they were obviously excluded. The primary outcome of the study was BPD or death, um, defined by uh, 36 weeks postmenstrual age. BPD was defined as moderate or severe BPD at 36 weeks, as uh, treatment with supplemental oxygen, pretty much based on the 2001 NIH definition. And um, yeah, they had a bunch of secondary outcomes, BPD alone, death alone, growth failure, postmenstrual age at discharge, growth failure uh, defined as uh, a weight less than 10th percentile of 36 weeks uh, using age-specific growth curves. So what you'll see in the in the methodology is that in the statistics section, you can't really miss it. They have two possible way of analyzing the data that they're going to use. One of them is called Instrumental Variable Analysis, and the other one is called the Generalized Propensity Score Matching, which you're probably very familiar with Generalized Propensity Score Matching, but the Instrumental Variable Analysis was something that was very interesting. And I'm not going to get into what each one is, because that's what uh, Sam Gentle is going to get into with us, but basically... Their data covered 6,268 infants uh, that were analyzed for the primary outcome of BPD or death. Um, most of these infants were either on nasal ventilation or CPAP on postnatal day seven. That was about 80% of the cohort. 36% developed the BP- BPD or died. And the mean duration of non-invasive support was 18 days. And what was interesting was that the depending on how you look at the data through either um, the um, Instrumental variable analysis, you they, they did not see an association between um, the duration of non-invasive support and BPD. But when you looked at general propensity score matching, that changed. And so within the same paper, you have two conflicting sets of results. And that really, if you're reading the paper attentively, will give you pause for concern because you're like, so what am I supposed to to be <laughs> taking away here um but i think the reason why that was needed was very interesting and i guess maybe we should uh let maybe uh, dr gentle explain some of that stuff himself so dr sam gentle thank you so much for being on the show and for coming to talk to us about uh about your your recent publication
2: yeah absolutely um long time fan so happy to <laughs> speak with you too <laughs> that's
1: awesome uh yeah. we're big time fans of your paper i think we've reviewed a couple uh over the past few months so so uh keep it up and uh <laughs> and so i i wanted to uh for the people who haven't read the study i think i think the the study called duration of non-invasive respiratory support and risk of bon- bronchopulmonary dysplasia or death is a very interesting study because it asks a question of uh does is being on non-invasive respiratory support for a long time really um decrease your BPD-free survival or even increase your rate of death. And I wanted to know if you could walk the audience through just um, how you ran your study and, and what do you think the main takeaways are?
2: Sure. I think this is a, a very common uh, clinical quandary in, in the unit. It's one that I think I've faced four or five times this week, uh, for instance. Uh, it, it, yeah, when do you stop non-invasive respiratory support? I think there's a lot of inter-center and intra center variation. Do you stop once babies, um, upon RDS resolution or evolving BPD resolution, or is it something that you extend for a set duration of time as a kind of center practice? And it's, it's a, it's a tricky observational analysis to perform because is the extension of non-invasive respiratory support. A, um, is it confounded by illness severity? So are you just extending the duration of support because these infants are sicker? Um, or or is there or center practices, in other words, extending to what I've commonly heard to 32 32 weeks post-menstrual age or some sort of pre-specified weight cutoff. Um, In those infants, would that actually provide any respiratory benefit um, in extending positive pressure exposure um, to those infants? Mm -hmm. So that was the the kind of – what we were challenged by in terms of the, the confounding by illness severity, so we um, took upon ourselves to, to go through a couple of different um, adjustment analytical lenses, and, the, and those that we chose were instrumental variable analysis and generalized propensity score matching, and they kind of adjust for different things. And I think you know the, we also were considering using a more traditional approach of logistic regression, mm-hmm. but again, thinking that this may not adjust sufficiently for some other maybe, uh, um, un uh, non-included, um, confounders so that, and I could get digger deeper into that analytical approach if, if interested, yeah, but, I just, I, but just I to think, set the I, scene, that was what we were yeah. kind of chewing on.
1: I think that's, yeah. So, so the data looks at, um, retrospect is retrospective review of, of data from the neonatal research network. Um, and, uh, you're looking at, at survival, um, you're looking at BPD at 36 weeks, um, I think you're using the 2001 NIH definition because I think the data was collected before um, the data was collected before 2019. So I mean, I, I assume that this was the reason. But the interesting part of the paper, obviously, is the statistical the statistical approach uh, where you're basically using something called instrumental variable analysis uh, to um, analyze whether the duration of exposure uh, to Non-invasive respiratory support may be related to center-specific practices rather than disease severity, and that sounds really cool. Like, can you can you tell us a little bit how does that work?
0: Yeah, tell us more. How that works?
1: <laughs> yeah, and we tried to be a little bit overly descriptive, maybe in the mm-hmm. methods section,
2: just knowing that folks may not be as familiar with these approaches. Mm-hmm. I certainly wasn't that familiar with these approaches prior to this analysis, honestly. But RTI, who um, is invaluable in kind of approaching these challenging clinical questions. Um, this was their input in terms of how to analytically approach this. So the instrumental variable analysis piece, yeah, like you were mentioning, is, is duration of exposure linked to center-specific practices. Uh, and I, as I was mentioning before, is non-invasive respiratory support stopped at this sort of predefined time point or based upon um, resolution of RDS or evolving BPD? And so the instrument, uh, again, instrumental variable, variable analysis is – was the average days at a patient's center. So this would reflect physician practices, but not necessarily um, patient illness severity. And so that's the kind of adjustment approach for that piece of our... And so we we chose that one analytical lens, and then the other one was the, the generalized propensity score matching. And this one will be, um, I think it will resonate or at least feel more familiar. It's, yeah. it's kind of akin to logistic regression in some ways, mm-hmm. but it adjusts more for confounding by um, illness severity, um, adjusting for covariates across different treatment levels. So this will use kind of more traditional covariates like gestational age, birth weight, FiO2, things that you would think um, would influence mm-hmm. the overall duration of exposure. Um, but within generalized propensity score mashing, um, rather than, you know, an odds ratio or an adjusted odds ratio, it looks at, um, kind of two different metrics and that's the average marginal effect. Mm-hmm. So that expresses on average, if you add more non-invasive respiratory support days or a more percentage of time at the hospitalization, does that impact outcomes and the outcomes being BPD death or a composite of the two? Mm-hmm. And then the other, um, component is the marginal effect at the mean. And that mm-hmm. is, estimates, the change in probability for extending respiratory support beyond the mean level in the sample. Um, so, and, and so that, a that was a reasonable job explaining those two. Uh, I think so. Yeah, it
0: makes stuff. way more sense when you say it. <laughs> 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 that was and, very helpful.
1: And so, what was interesting was that in the so in the results section, you you, you walk the uh, reader through the data through these different lenses. And what what I found to be very interesting is that depending on how you looked at the data, mm-hmm. the association between uh, non-invasive ventilation days and BPD, BPD, or death uh, really changed depending on whether you were looking at this when you were looking at the marginal effect of the means or whether you were looking at the quantiles. Um, and even in the other outcomes, when you started looking at uh, categories of days, if, if a baby had been on a uh, zero to one day or one to seven days or seven to 14 days. And the data really changed depending on how you looked at it. And and I think how c- can you tell us a, a little bit as a researcher, when you, when you go through this and you can really pull the data in different directions, how do you present the information in a way that is uh, not really biased?
2: Yeah, no, I think it's what's tough about this manuscript is coming up. Coming away with a cohesive takeaway, Mm -hmm. like you're mentioning, the instrumental variable analysis has a different conclusion, honestly, from the propensity score matching analysis. The instrumental variable analysis, again, that's the um, how do center practices sort of influence duration. That was non-significant. Um, for, for these outcomes. But if you look at the propensity score matching more specifically by the marginal effect at the mean, so if you're looking at the whole sample, you look at the mean duration of non-invasive respiratory support, which was about 18 days, Eighteen days. and yeah. let's say you expose babies more for a, a longer period of time, that was actually positively associated with BPD or death. So further extending um, exposure for the composite outcome um, increased the composite outcome. But uh, interestingly, for death alone it decreased death. So so there's a lot of inconsistencies I would say if you look at table tunes specifically between these different analytical techniques. And I will say that this wasn't published but we looked at logistic regression as well um, and that was actually similarly associated like the um, a longer duration of exposure increased risk for BPD or death. And uh, in terms of back to my you know what's the cohesive takeaway to me is that extending non-invasive respiratory support based on these, analysis, these analyses is not necessarily something that i think from again observational data lower mm-hmm. level of evidence compared to some randomized studies that have looked at the extended cpap or i'm um, stopping it upon reaching stability criteria which may vary by study but but our analyses did not suggest that there is a extending cpap for a pre-specified duration of time would benefits babies um mm-hmm. although i've seen Again, kind of growing trends for extending non-invasive respiratory support to these sort of pre-specified time points. I think I've, you know, walked around at Vermont Oxford Network, their, their annual quality congress, and I've seen a number of different um, initiatives that are you know, this extension of non-invasive respiratory support. But I'm not sure that there's sufficient evidence for that that practice.
1: So I was I was not really. Uh... <laughs> Uh, at our center, we we tend to like to keep babies at least on, on some CPAP until 32 weeks based on the evidence that is quoted in the paper um, for for long-term outcomes. And then coming at the end, I kind of, I fell in love with the instrumental variable analysis because I think it pointed okay. at exactly what the issue was, where these babies are being continued on CPAP, but we don't really know why. And, and were they even, you mentioned that I think also in the discussion where it's like, has as as any has anybody even tried to win them? Mm-hmm. We wouldn't know from the data itself. So um, I was I was happy that you mm-hmm. used the, the outcomes that you gathered from the instrumental variable analysis and said that no, the association was not really found. Uh, when in truth, even in the paper, some of the data from the propensity score matching and and even those those uh, dose response curves were were frightening. <laughs> <laughs>
2: Um, I hope the, what frightens you less, though, is is the if you look at the kind of higher end of the mm-hmm. those dose response curves, there are far fewer babies in the far right component of that. So I I would I'd focus on the left half. Of,
1: Fine. Of the, I'm the, happy the about that.
2: That's good. <laughs> <laughs> that um, don't want that to scare you. Yeah. Um, My question um, is ahead,
0: um, more of a like an ethical question, right? When we're reporting statistics in um, in our work. Right, yeah. so you have all the data. Everybody always has their their data, and you have mm-hmm. the opportunity to release or not release right data mm-hmm. that that you have. I, that happens all the time. Um, so what made you guys write about all the data? Right, And um, put out mm-hmm. all of the perspectives, which I really value. I think that's really important. I think I'm hopeful everybody will do it, but sure, I think that's the case.
2: <laughs> yeah, no, I th- I think um. We we were again fairly conflicted in terms of what would be the ultimate mm-hmm. central analysis, mm-hmm. you know. And again, we we kind of presented two what we call we consider fairly equivalent analyses. But I've seen similar propensity score related um, analyses of, for instance, there's um, Dr. Greenberg uh, did a, a paper on fur- furosemide exposure and BPD using similar propensity score. So our babies getting more. Basic exposure because they're sicker or is it sort of a center of practice the same quandary right mm-hmm. um, so is more exposure beneficial um or is it more just related to illness severity but in terms of, of providing all the data I, I think you know we we wanted to provide as much transparency in terms of what we collected and, and showing some of the trends in the tables when you, we kind of do those sort of um, stratified buckets of durations of severity, mm-hmm. like you were mentioning one week versus two weeks versus three weeks, because we thought each component had relevant takeaways. So I think some of those tables, well, let's say your center is, is kind of wrestling over, oh, well, should, maybe we should stop at two weeks of exposure. Um, well, you know, if you look at that kind of dose response from those tables, it's not as though those babies have overall greater benefits from from death of BPD. So we thought that table would, for instance, be fairly clinically relevant. Um, Does this duration of exposure, is this a benefit? Um, But we also wanted to have uh, analyses that adjusted for, again, the illness um, severity, which we thought was the the biggest burden upon us was Uh adjusting for illness severity Uh and taking into account um, center-specific practices. So I, I think each analytical angle, prov- uh, uh, mm-hmm. angle provided different um, narratives, and um, but I, I thought they answered different questions that mm-hmm. were all kind of similarly important. Relevant. As you're chewing on, should I take this baby off non-invasive sort of respiratory support?
1: Yeah, I mean that paper is like a stick of dynamite. You know, it's like you can mm-hmm. you, you can have people arguing both sides of the argument mm-hmm. with the same data. This is this is gonna be <laughs> right, this is gonna be fun. but. Uh, Yes, Sam. Thank you. Thank you so much for coming on and for and for sharing with us uh, the findings of the study and walking us through some of the methodology. I think it's a fantastic paper, and uh, I think it's going to give a lot of fodder to the discussion as to okay. how long do we keep these babies on an IMV, CPAP, or even high-flow nasal cannula. So, uh, great work. Thank you. Thank you so very much.
2: Appreciate it. Uh, it was a pleasure talking with you both and uh, keep going with the podcast. And again, thank you. loving what y'all
1: are doing. <laughs> thank you very much.
0: We love what you're doing. Thanks so much. <laughs> All right. All right.
1: Um, thank you to Dr. Gentle for uh, going over that with us. Uh, Daphna, do we have any more papers to go over today? Of course. Let's go. <laughs> we
0: have piles of papers, but we will do what we can. Um, I had this uh other article. Um, does active treatment in infants born at twenty-two to twenty-three weeks correlate with outcomes of more mature infants at the same hospital? An Finally. analysis <laughs> an analysis of California NICU data, two thousand fifteen to two thousand nineteen. Lead author uh Shalmali Bain. Uh this is a journal of perinatology. So uh, the group wanted to investigate whether hospital rates of active treatment, so do you resuscitate or not, uh, basically, for infants born at 22 to 23 weeks. And if you resuscitate more of these extremely preterm babies in hospitals that, uh, that resuscitate less extremely preterm babies is... Uh, does that improve your survival of infants that are born a little bit later, like twenty four to twenty seven? I love that question. Yeah, so if you it's
1: like if you if you if you resuscitate twenty two weekers, are you better now at twenty five weekers? Right?
0: Yeah, it's a, re- <laughs> it's a reasonable that. question. I'd love that. So basically, for lack of a does practice make better for for lack of a mm-hmm. better terminology? So is it a, a valid question? Um. Yes. I mean, uh, we're learning so much about the, um, you know, extremely preterm infant. Uh, in a way, we've always advanced medicine by practice. Um, but again, at what cost? Um but of note, especially when it comes to these uh, periviable age, there is huge variation across um, the state of California and a large variation across the country worldwide in outcomes of the very preterm infants and of the moderately preterm infant. So study design, this is actually a, this is a retrospective chart review. Um, and it's a it's a type of cohort study. So the inclusion criteria is all live-born infants at 22 to 27 weeks gestation delivered at CPQCC. Um, uh, and again, that's the um, California uh, Collaborative Member Hospitals during 2015 to 2019. Um, and all the infants were born at hospitals with greater than or equal to total... Uh, greater than or equal to 10 total births between gestational age of 22 to 27 over the study period. So they had to have at least 10 um, of those births uh, to be included in the analysis. and they had uh, 8,802 infants at 122 hospitals. Um, and then to look at hospital level analysis, only hospitals with greater than or equal to five births at the 22 to 23 weeks uh, gestation specifically were included. So that's 88 hospitals. This exclusion criteria were severe congenital malformations, and they did not include any outborn infants uh, to these hospitals. Um, as we know, Uh, you know, transport, being outborn is in in and of itself a big uh, risk factor for morbidity Uh and mortality. So the the primary exposure was basically the hospital, the total hospital rate. So does your hospital do a lot of resuscitation of 22 to 23 weekers? And again, active treatment was defined if infant had received any of the following interventions, intubation, CPAP, uh, non-invasive positive pressure ventilation, Uh, for infants that survived greater than 12 hours, uh, epinephrine or cardiac compressions in the delivery room. And hospital rates were computed as the proportion of infants born at 22 to 23 weeks at the hospital during the study period who received active treatment. The primary outcome. So the study outcome was, again, the hospital rate of survival to discharge, Um, And uh, the secondary outcomes, they looked at survival without any of the following major morbidities. Severe retinopathy of prematurity, uh, chronic lung disease uh, defined as O2 at 36 weeks or discharge at 34 to 35 weeks with supplemental oxygen neck with e- either diagnosed surgery or postmortem examination or clinically using the following criteria, uh, bilious gastric aspirate or emesis, abdominal extension, bloody stools, and then the radiographic findings, pneumatosis, uh, portal venous gas, pneumoperitoneum. They looked at nosocomial infections, uh, severe IVH, and cystic PBL. So the baseline characteristics for these 8,802 infants um Uh, were that they had 1,600 infants uh, born at 22 to 23 weeks, that's 18%, 3,045 at 24 to 25 weeks, 34%, and uh, 4,154 at 26 to 27 weeks, 47%. The hospital rates of active treatment for infants aged 22 to 23 weeks ranged from 0 to 100% uh, with a median rate of 57%. So big, big variability. So the prime, uh, the primary outcome. So without adjusting for differences in the patient characteristics among hospitals, the hospital level of active treatment was highly correlated with survival in the 22 to 23 week cohort. So the more often you resuscitated 22 to 23 weekers, the um, more likely they were to survive, an R of 0.69. Um, and modestly correlated with survival without morbidity, R equals 0.21. Levels of active treatment in the 22 to 23-week cohort were not correlated with any hospital-level infant outcomes in either the 24 to 25 weeks of gestation cohort or the 26 to 27-week cohort, which is super interesting. Crazy. Crazy. Similarly, active treatment was highly correlated with the rate of cesarean section, that's not surprising, in antenatal care in 22 to 23 weeks infants, but not in either of the older cohorts. And then they looked at models adjusting for those differences that they found in patient characteristics, so their multivari- variable analysis, and a 10% increase in rate of active treatment was associated with an increase in survival for the 22- to 23-week population, um, adjusted odds ratio of 1.22, but was not associated with an increase in survival for the twenty-five to 24- to 25-week group, uh, odds ratio of 1, or the 26- to 27-week population, odds ratio of 1. No association between the active treatment and survival without morbidities were observed for any of the populations. And excluding antenatal steroids from the model actually had no effect on the relationship between postnatal active treatment rate and infant count outcomes, which is also very interesting. Um, so the study takeaways are that in this retrospective cohort study uh, in California, they found that if you resuscitated more 22 to 23 weekers, um, they, it did not improve your outcomes in the 24 to 27 weeks of gestation. But it did improve your outcomes in the twenty-two to twenty-three week population. So strengths was multi-center, huge data set. Limitations were that it was a retrospective chart review. It's really the best we can do for this kind of data. Um, I would have liked to have seen more baseline characteristics included um, in in this uh, paper proper. Um, it won't change my practice because we get what we get. But it it. I guess it made me feel better that the low volume hospitals aren't necessarily performing worse in those moderately preterm groups. Um, I think it also shows that those 22 to 23 weekers are just a whole different type of patient than the 24 to 27 weekers.
1: But yeah, I mean, that's, that's, that's what I was wondering, right? Do you, do we think they're that different that because yeah, I them...
0: expected that you would, it would correlate.
1: Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think if you're (laughs) able to manage these 22 to 23-weekers, then your outcomes for 24 to 25 should be much better. Um,
0: I do wonder, too, it's hard to study the variability in when and why we get 22 and 23-weekers, right? Some of them are preterm labor, right? They just – they're there. They showed up, so we we had them. And some of them are, you know, decisions about moms – and you know, cesarean delivery for maternal indications. So there's variability in that too. And so, is it better to wait until they're they're a little more mature, but in extremis, or to get them a little earlier, but not in extremis? It's it's I don't want to be an OB. I tell you what,
1: mm-hmm. <laughs> I wanted to go over some of these odds ratio as well, just yeah. because. I mean, we've been talking a lot about I mean, most of the papers we talked about today had odds ratio. And I know we talked about this on the Neonatology Review podcast, but just for the people who don't recall, right? If you have an odds ratio of one, it means that Mm -hmm. the odds are the the same between one intervention and the control. And then if you have odds greater than one, then your likelihood by being exposed to whatever you're testing is greater than the control and then less than 1 it means that your likelihood of getting the outcome by being exposed to whatever is lower than the control mm-hmm. so in case this was confusing i'm sorry we should have maybe brought this up again mm-hmm. sooner but we should all know this so um but i feel like in this in this article like you end up scratching your head right it's like mm-hmm. how how is how is that that <laughs> it's not a linear relationship it's very interesting. Anyway, um, okay, it's a very interesting paper. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, it's interesting. It's interesting. It's a very interesting study because you tend to think, okay, if we take on this mental, then maybe we'll be better, a better center mm-hmm. overall. But that's, that's that's not necessarily true. Um, all right. Yeah. Uh, all right. I have one more paper, and then we can probably.
0: Yeah, um, we will be out of time. I think.
1: Yeah, I wanted to just mention this paper that I saw in Pediatric Pulmonology called Erythropoietin for Preventing Bronchopulmonary mm-hmm. Dysplasia in Preterm Infants, a Systematic Review and Mid-Analysis. I
0: know, you're trying to make EPO prevent everything.
1: No, exactly, I'm not. <laughs> but I'm thinking every time something comes out with EPO, I'm going to get an email saying like, oh, like now is it going to prevent BPD? This was <laughs> uh, from uh, first author Jing Li from Zhengzhou in the Henan province of China. The idea is that EPO may exert protective effects against BPD. Okay. And the idea is, you know there's something called transfusion-related lung injury. If you prevent mm-hmm. more if you prevent transfusion, maybe you can prevent more lung injury because of it. So the idea was sound. Uh, they did a min-analysis looking at um, the published clinical randomized control trial or quasi-randomized control trial. Interestingly enough, only written in English. Mm. That was very peculiar because I yeah. saw the, the study out of China. I was like, oh, am I going to get to see some mm-hmm. interesting data that I could not read? But no, it was only papers published in English. Uh, they looked at infants that were less than 34 weeks and that received either IV or sub-Q um, EPO initiated less than a- at less than eight days of age in the neonatal period. Um, so they looked at the primary outcome of BPD, and they had um, a physiologic definition, and they had a general BPD definition. They looked at oxygen dependence in days. They looked at the numbers of number of infants requiring mechanical ventilation, and they looked at some secondary outcomes, necrotizing enterocolitis, sepsis, death before discharge, ROP. Uh, the baseline characteristics, they looked at 400 studies. Uh, they evaluated all these papers and 14 of these studies were included in the analysis, which amounts to about 3,200 infants. Uh, The studies were published published between the year 2000 and 2020. In terms of the primary outcome, um, they showed no significant effect of EPO on BPD at 36 weeks with high quality evidence, and the physiologic definition of BPD at 28 days, that was low quality evidence. Uh, the mid-analysis showed no significant effect of EPO on any kind of oxygen-dependent uh, of oxygen-dependence days. Um, and for RCTs, studied the number of infants requiring mechanical ventilation, it could not demonstrate a significant reduction in infants requiring invasive ventilation. Now, in the secondary outcome, this is where all the discussion is going to happen. 14 RCTs that reported the rates of NEC showed that EPO significantly decreased the incidence of any stage NEC. Uh, subgroup analysis showed that only IV EPO significantly reduced any stage NEC. Uh, mid-analysis of the data from five randomized control trials showed no significant effect of EPO on stage two or higher NEC. Some of the trials um, showed that IV EPO significantly reduced the risk of sepsis. And then finally, that the incidence of ROP reported in various RCTs was comparable in the EPO and control group neonate, except for significantly increased incidence of ROP when EPO was administered subcutaneously. So the takeaways are that EPO does not affect the development of BPD in preterm infants. And um, there's all these questions that are going to come up about NEC and uh, ROP. Hmm. Now, the only thing I want to say is that there's a few limitations. Obviously we don't don't have a control of the EPO doses Mm -hmm. that were given across this trial. The duration is variable as well. And only when it comes to the NEC, it's important to realize that only one of the studies that they looked at in their meta-analysis used neck as a used neck as a primary outcome, and um, all the studies that uh, were mentioned in this paper were present in the most recent Cochrane review on on IPO, and um, and the effect on on ROP has been shown not to be really significant when all these studies are put together. So, again, more adding more uh, fodder Mm. to the fire of should we be more careful with EPO. But, uh,
0: yeah. Well, what my question is, is these differences in IV versus subcutaneous EPO because, you know, in our unit, we go back and forth or we start Mm -hmm. with IV and then we switch to sub-Q. But I thought that was interesting too to look at um, the differences. Some of the studies had differences depending on administration route. Right. So the one thing
1: that was not really accounted for by the authors about this topic specifically is whether, Mm -hmm. I mean, for example, in our protocol, we move to a sub-Q injection Mm -hmm. format when Mm -hmm. you reach, when you lose your IV, basically, Mm -hmm. right? As long Mm -hmm. as you have an IV, we won't inject EPO sub-Q. So the question is, does that make a difference? Meaning because, right? If you're NPO and Mm -hmm. EPO is being given to you IV, then you're less likely to have neck because you're not being fed. Mm-hmm. I mean, technically, but if ipo is being given to you subq, that does was that, a, mean- that
0: was a, that was a brave, brave, brave statement that you. I made. know, very
1: brave. <laughs> but you know, if, have you called a surgeon for neck? And the first question has they ask you is like, "Is this BB feeding?" Right? They're they're asking <laughs> you right. It's, so it's what I'm saying is. When you're talking about sub Q being more of an issue, the question mm-hmm. becomes is the is it the chicken or the egg? Is it that the baby sure, is sure. higher at risk of neck because the baby is now on full feeds, no longer has an IV and now the EPO has to be given sub Q, or is it really you see what I'm saying?
0: Yeah. And I mean, are I guess are there units that are keeping in IVs just to give EPO? I, that I feels that
1: feels that feels a bit of an, like an overkill, I would say. We we have we have looked carefully at uh, painful pricks and, and making mm-hmm. sure that we don't extend our EPO course past a certain time point to minimize these subcutaneous injections. And we try to give it IV as much as possible as long as an IV access is available. So, yeah, but all our babies who are on full feeds have no IVs, get it sub Q. Mm-hmm. And they're probably the most at risk of developing that because they're being f- fully fed. Um, so, who knows? Very interesting. Yeah. But it doesn't increase, it doesn't reduce BPD. So it, doesn't reduce PPD, it doesn't which reduce was BPD. It doesn't reduce BPD. Question. <laughs> okay. I think that's it for us, Daphna. Anything yeah. uh, you wanted to share? We're not going to PAS. People have been asking us whether we'll I know. at PAS.
0: Well, I'm, I'm, I have, uh, I have uh, FOMO. I fear missing out. Mm-hmm. And it's not a fear. I'm missing. I feel like, we're, like uh, we'd like to be there, obviously. But we have an exciting, the incubator has an exciting trip coming up. And somebody had to watch the unit this week.
1: Yeah, that's us. The incubator <laughs> is holding up the unit. But we will. I'm realizing that we should probably speak to some of the PAS people mm-hmm. about next year and try to make something happen. We should have like a social hour, something something that could be fun at PS next year.
0: Yeah, you know, we've been thinking about that for some time. So I we'd know. love to have a, an incubator social.
1: Yeah. But this year, this year we've had a lot of conflicting stuff like i just came back yeah. from a conference we're going to another conference mm-hmm. very soon so it's just not feasible but next year next year sounds like uh maybe we'll we, should, we should make something happen now. maybe like you know have a, a meetup as those
0: uh... yeah we we got some things in mind we got some fun things in mind but we hope everybody had a great trip and learned a lot and have a safe trip home and we're still recording so mm-hmm. <laughs>
1: All right, Daphne. Have a good, have a good uh, evening. evening. Bye. Bye. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of the Incubator. If you liked this episode, please leave us a review on Apple Podcast or the Apple Podcast website. You can find other episodes of the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcast, or the podcast app of your choice. We would love to hear from you, so feel free to send us questions, comments, or suggestions to our email address, necubepodcast at gmail.com. You can also message the show on Instagram or Twitter at NICU Podcast. Personally, I am on Twitter at Dr. NICU, spelled D R N I C U, and Daphna is at Dr. Daphna MD. Thanks again for listening and see you next time. This podcast is intended to be purely for entertainment and informational purposes and should not be construed as medical advice. If you have any medical concerns, please see your primary care practitioner. Thank you.